1: Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode I'll be talking to journalists, experts and long-time China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How do the Chinese see these issues? 178 miles to the east of Beijing, there's a beach resort called Beidaihe. The water is shallow and the sand is yellow and fine. Luxurious holiday villas dot the coastline. Starting from the 1950s, leaders of the Chinese Communist Party have moved their families and work to Beidaihe in the summer, making the beach resort something of a summer capital. But secrecy clouds the gatherings, and though this tradition continues, today the resort seems to serve a much more leisurely purpose when the CCP visits. On this episode, I'm joined by the historian James Carter and Bill Bishop, editor of the very popular Cynicism newsletter, to discuss where communist leaders go when they go on summer holiday. What is the changing role of Beidaihe? And what does that say about the changing nature of leadership at the top of the Chinese Communist Party? Jay and Bo, welcome back to Chinese Whispers. My pleasure.
0: My pleasure, too. Thanks for having us.
1: Now, should we start with the origins of Beidaihe, Jay, because communist leaders weren't the first to take advantage of its beach and the lovely weather, were they? No,
2: it, it started, uh, like many of these beach resorts, it was a, a product sort of, of imperialism, I suppose. Um, it was Brits looking for a place to go to the ocean. So really started in the 1890s was the, the first formal institutions were put up there. So people started vacationing there, kind of as a rival to Qingdao and other seaside resorts. But really started in the 1890s. And then by the 1920s, really, you started to have more Chinese coming in to the city, to the to the resort. Um, but yeah, it's been a seaside haunt for, what, that makes it now 100 years? More than 100 years.
1: Mm. And Bill, when did the communist leaders start to go?
0: Uh, that's a, a first let me just say I, I first went to Beidahu in nineteen ninety-three. I actually went up for a weekend from Beijing and it is actually quite lovely. It had a sort of an older town feel. I think it's probably quite different now. But did it you was, take the train up? Yes, I did. It was a very nice old sort of train and it was, you know, pre-high speed rail. But it's actually quite convenient to Beijing. Um, when did they start? You know, that's a great question. Maybe Jay knows the exact date. I think it was after 1949. It was must have been in the early 50s when Mao Zedong sort of started to move up there. But I'm actually not sure.
2: Yeah, the f- 53 was the first note that I had seen in terms of anyone being up there. It's funny, Bill. I was there in 1990. I was trying to figure it out either three or four. Um, so So maybe we passed each other without noticing, although we probably would have stood out.
1: So this is a place where normal people can go. You know, it might be a bit sensitive for journalists to go these days, but certainly tourists, Chinese tourists are able to go as well. Is that right? And the communist leaders have just chosen this as a retreat as well. Well,
2: and also chosen it as, you know, as what? Like, I mean, we're kind of like dancing around. What do you call it? Like it gets all these words get thrown around. Like, is it a conclave? Is it a meeting? Is it a holiday? Is it a vacation? Is it a working vacation? is it actually happening at all? There's nothing to see here. So yes, it's especially if you go back into the 50s, sometimes it would last for two months that people would just be up there doing exactly what no one is really sure. Uh, But yeah, early 50s is when it started that the communists started hanging out there and what they were doing. They were taking a vacation, they were talking some business, they were making some pretty momentous decisions we'll talk about, but they were exactly what they were doing and how they were doing it, pretty secretive stuff.
0: It uh, also, you know, it's now, yeah, it, you know, anyone can go. It was also a town that wasn't just for the top leadership. You had sort of all sorts of ministries and organs had their own, like, sort of vacation spots, resort areas that senior cadres, model workers, et cetera, would sort of get rewarded with a vacation to Beidai And I think in some cases, it may still, I mean, certainly every year now, there's the, you know, Beidai ha has started because. One of the standing committee members will meet with a group of experts who've been invited to Badaho for like a, a special vacation because they're in some ways, they're excellent or you know, they made great contributions. So like this year, I think it was August third, and there were fifty seven of these experts who pop up in a picture and then you know, okay, they're there on
2: something doing something in Badaiha. One thing that Bill was mentioning reminds me of the there are two kind of competing strands in its past that I think are really interesting. So one, is the sort of this European influence. And if you've been to Qingdao or certain other place like that, you've got these kind of kind of weird European-esque
1: colonial buildings. Colonial buildings
2: yeah. that are set down there. And sometimes they're new ones that have been built to replicate the colonial buildings. Sometimes they're actually old. And sometimes they're both that have been like they were old buildings, but they didn't seem to look foreign enough. And so they were made to look somehow more foreign. Anyway, they're kind of strange. The other thing that reminds me of, and Bill was alluding to this a bit, is if you've ever traveled I mean, especially in like the former Soviet bloc, and I guess I'm dating myself even using that as a word. But if you travel around like in Eastern Europe, if you go into you know Poland or the Czech Republic, Eastern parts of Germany, there would be these sort of sanatoriums and these yeah. resorts that would be for might be for a particular trade union, maybe like the miners' union or the railroad union, and they would go there for their week or two, whatever it would be, a year, and that would be their, their okay. You will now have mandatory fun. And that's kind of what was going up. Bay Dai and I, I think that uh, I mean, it was Peter Hessler, who wrote about it one time, was kind of describing wistfully these. I think there are coal miners and they're like sitting on the beach because none of them can swim. I mean, they've barely seen the ocean. They're sitting there, <laughs> you know, not working in the coal mine. So that's good. But it's a little bit poignant as to how they're exactly spending their holiday.
1: Well, let's talk about how the communist leaders used it. You know, when it first started then, because we'll get into some of the kind of questions over its its modern day form in a bit. But when Chairman Mao started taking his government and top leaders to Beidaihe, I think, is it fair to say that it was a working vacation? There are these pictures of him with his family on the beach, him sitting in a pair of swimming shorts, like kind of, you know, chest bear, which is quite funny, but also clearly some big decisions did get made there. So Bill, what was he thinking in terms of why did he have to move the government there and sometimes for months at a time? Well,
0: Beijing gets really hot. And especially in the 50s, there was not, I don't think a lot of air conditioning in Beijing. And you just have to look at the imperial history, right? I mean, you have the summer palace, you had Chengde, right? I mean, this is a common thing for the top leader or the emperor at the time to leave Beijing in the summer, because it's quite, can be quite miserable. So I think it was, you know, the camp, the top decision makers up to Betaha. It's a lot nicer. You know, you get the nice ocean breezes, but then they continue to run the government like they would have in Beijing for the most part.
1: It's quite an informal way of running a government though, isn't it, Bill? Because, you know, you are there at a beach resort after all. Do you think that shows, tells us something about Mao's personal way of leading like does he have the kind of more of an informal way forward you know some people have said that he likes to pit people against each other and maybe something like bide helped that because instead of going through formal meetings you're kind of like seeing each other at a beach resort
0: no i think that's good i think it was a probably a manifestation of his general work style which was really not about institutionalization or routinization but more about sort of i mean he was he was number one so to speak to be simplistic
1: yeah. And Jay, um, let's talk about some of those big decisions that were made at Beidaihe then, because I think 1958, for example, was quite a momentous year, wasn't it? Tell us about that. Oh yeah. In
2: 58, I mean, a couple of different things were happening actually in, in 58. So one was they made the decision to, in the second, what became the second Taiwan Strait crisis, So made the decision to, to launch uh, tens of thousands of artillery shells into some of the offshore islands um, that are controlled by Taiwan, but are only in some cases within swimming distance of the mainland. That was a decision that was came out of beidaihe and a lot of the five-year plan which really led to the great leap forward so in, in effect the great leap forward was really launched out of beidaihe so you know beta like like many things in the cultural revolution especially but in the maoist era there's a lot of things that have a sort of comical edge to them because they're so absurd but they're grim i mean tens of millions of people you know died as a result of decisions that came out of beidaihe so it is this the awkward picture of mao and his ill-fitting shorts sitting on the beach in his chair, Um, but you know that the decisions that are coming out of that are are beyond grim. So, I mean, others, you know, Deng Xiaoping kind of, the the tradition of Beida sort of died in the Cultural Revolution because, well, there were other things going on. Deng Xiaoping revived it, and and he used it to make some pretty significant decisions, including some of the sort of anti-corruption campaigns that he moved forward that have kind of filtered through much after his time. But in any case, a lot of decisions got made. Part of the challenge in answering that question is we don't really know what goes on there. It's not an official party event, that there's not a formal statement or a policy document that comes out of it. So it's a lot of reading the signs and the the smoke signals.
1: But I think the interesting thing about these photos that we can see these days of people at Beidaihe is that they were reported on by state media at the time. So what was the messaging there in sense of what was the thinking behind telling people these beach resorts are happening? We don't really necessarily know what's going on in them until after the fact. But whereas these days, and let's get onto that shortly as well, it seems much, much more downplayed or almost secretive. Bill?
0: That's a great question. I mean, again, back then, there, obviously, there were a, a very small handful of media channels. And so it was very easy to control the messaging. And, you know, it was all about, I think, also just making sure that people understood that the leaders don't just disappear for months at a time or weeks at a time. I mean, if Mao didn't appear in the People's Daily for a X number of weeks or so, I think people would be wondering what the heck is going on, right? So you have to have, I think it's it was part of the overall propaganda messaging. But it was also, this was not a vacation in the sense. I mean, they were still running the country. They just moved, mm. moved the operations to someplace cooler and a little bit nicer with better seafood.
1: Is it optional? Is it part of work? Do you have to go as a it's member? It's a question.
0: And it's, you know, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I know now you can see, like the standing committee members tend to disappear for the... 13, 14, 15 or so day period. But some pop your members pop up in other places. Uh, provincial heads pop up in other places. So it's not like they're all gone. I mean, this year actually was interesting because there was a state council executive meeting that Li Qiang, the premier, chaired on August 8th. And because I think it was about the floods, but I don't remember mm. them actually talking about a premier holding a meeting during beta He in recent years. Mm. But in general, the top seven, five, seven, or nine, depending on the makeup of the standing committee, they seem to just disappear for the entire period.
1: And Jay. You know, you mentioned Deng Xiaoping there. Did he also benefit from the informality of the meetings? Because even though, as we've talked about you and I on the podcast before, you know, he had ultimate control of China, his paramount leader, he didn't really have very many formal roles except for head of the Central Military Commission. So, did he find that informality of these meetings also helpful?
2: Yeah, I think so. I think that informality and and that—I mean, secrecy—is not exactly the right way to put it. But if it's not exactly clear what the relationships are like, everybody has this vague sense that Deng Xiaoping is in charge, and sometimes not even a vague sense, a very clear sense, but exactly how that power is exercised is sometimes not entirely clear. So yeah, when you're at a beach resort and uh, you've, I mean, everybody is, as Bill was saying, we don't really know, but it's pretty clear that who's expected to be there. And if you weren't there, that would be a problem. That would be noticeable. Um, And so almost like a court, kind of almost like a Versailles style kind of court that you know everybody's there, who's in which hut, who's in, you know, who's invited to which dinners and, and which lunches and who's walking along the beach with whom. Those are all ways of, as you we were saying earlier, playing people against one another. And maybe the best example of that didn't really happen at the Beidaihe meeting itself, but took place in He, which is the plot, supposed plot, by Lin Biao to overthrow Mao, which emerged out of, you know, Lin Biao, as listeners probably know, had been Mao's number two, had been appointed as Mao's number two, a very, very strange man by all accounts, had a his villa during the period that he was... Mao second, uh, his designated successor, was in Beidaihe with his swimming pool and his movie theater. And it was from Beidaihe that he was preparing to launch the coup, or maybe his son was launching the coup, or whatever it was, it was found out, and he tried to flee the country from the airport and uh, eventually died in a plane crash in, in Mongolia. So there's stuff in Beidaihe that is, a lot of it's connected to the meeting, but there's also these other pieces that go along that, again, are shrouded in secrecy, which I think kind of... Uh, maybe coincidence, but it is still the case that we don't always know what comes out of Beidaihua.
0: And it also is, at least historically, I think in the Dong era, it, we talked about sort of the lack of formal titles. But then also in the in the Jianghu era, it was also, you know, the retired elders go too. Again, there are all sorts of rumors and claims about what influence they had, or you know, at, at different times, we don't know. But certainly that was a, a big feature of the previous era of Beta he I think in the Xi era, just given what's happened with the elders in general, it seems like that's probably less of a factor now than it might've been, say, in the 10 years under Hu Hao or, or during the Jiang Zemin era.
1: Yeah, and I was Totally enraptured by Peter Hesler's um, description of Lin Biel's old villa and how overgrown it is and it's still kind of like surrounded and no one's allowed to go in there, even though Lin Biel hadn't been in it since, was it 1960? No, 1973? No, yeah, uh, yeah, 71. 71, 71, yeah. 71 right. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you, either of you have seen Lin Biel's villa there, but this idea that, you know, each of leaders have their own villas and then even the disgraced, you know, they can't be demolished. It's kind of just hidden in plain sight, but you're not allowed to go in there. It's incredible.
2: Um, I've not been a bill have of you, have you. Did you see his villa when you were there? No, no,
0: I did not. I mean, I will say that, you know, during the Mao era, there were other villas around the country. So for example, I've stayed in the Limbial Villa on the West Lake in Hangzhou. It was part of it had been converted into a hostel. So I think I stayed there in like '92 when I was traveling on the cheap, right? And it was a very strange place. Mao had a villa. I mean, they tended to pick really nice places around the country and put their sort of villas where they could vacation, work, etc. And so the Linbiao Villa in Hangzhou had been, you know, was in, not in great shape in '92, but it was definitely not overgrown. Beta Hill, I have no idea. I wonder if it's still that way. It sounds pretty creepy, right?
1: And Peter Hessler, when he wrote about it, said he got picked up immediately by um, plainclothes police when he went.
2: As we are talking about the physical layout of also with the villas, that's, and you asked the question about what was the messaging going on with showing these communist leaders at the beach. I think that they're trying to thread this needle of being both the, I mean, being the leadership and sort of having a position above the rest of society, but also being very much of society. So Betahu was a beach resort that was open to the public, as we were talking about earlier. So it's kind of divided into these three pieces. So you've got that one piece, which is open to the public, the middle piece, which was sort of these soviet-era sanatoriums which are be designated for mm-hmm. or public houses be designated for often for different segments of society and then the area with the villas and the the where the it was very exclusive and during the conclave whatever you want to call it it would be uh, under heavy security so i think the idea that you're seeing people at like mao at beidaihe well you could go to beidaihe also even though virtually no one would but the idea was that they're not some place that was off limits to the rest of society they're part of society Nowadays, of course, yeah, the fact that it's happening can only be deduced by the absence of certain leaders from the news for a period of time.
1: Well, let's talk about beidai in the modern age then, because after Hu Jintao took charge, he nominally stopped beidai as an arm of government, I guess, as a procession uh, for government to go to in 2003. But Bill, as we've already talked about, leaders do still go to beidai So do we know anything about what it's been like in the last 20 years? What role does that resort play now?
0: No, it's a... (laughs) Again, another example of how hard it is to figure out what's going on. So yeah, I guess right after Hu Jintao took power, the first summer of 2003, the leadership issued this directive basically saying they would no longer, the top organs would no longer go to Beidahe to work. And so uh, people said, oh, there's no more Beidahe meeting, but they still went. And so again, it's certainly from various accounts and rumors, it sounds like there were still decisions being made, and especially around personnel being discussed at Bay Dai um and maybe Jay can, because can, I'm actually, I'm not sure exactly, but maybe Jay knows, but whether or not that meant that after 2003, the period they were gone was shortened. I actually don't know. That, that actually probably be interesting if all of a sudden it really became just like two weeks versus before it might have been a month or so
2: yeah over time it, it's definitely gotten shorter I mean my understanding is back in the 50s it would last for for a couple of months I think I mentioned that earlier but but recently yeah it's t- tended to be a couple of weeks yeah maybe that's tied to it being lowered as a priority but again we don't really know and to say it's too, to say it lasts for two weeks, you know what even is the it so there's not an opening ceremony a closing ceremony so I would imagine look I, I work in Philadelphia and so a, a lot of people go down the Jersey Shore and so you'll find people who like all congregate in a town. And when you come back on Monday, you'll talk to people who have, they weren't there on, on purpose, but they often have meetings or conversations that they all happen to meet in this particular town. They've been going there for years. And so it is kind of an informal conversation. I, I imagine that that has a, a relevance to what goes on sort of Bei Dai Um It's more formal than that, but it is people there. They're expected to be there every year. There are certain dynamics that play out every year, but exactly how it's going to be isn't there. And it's not a formal start and a formal end. It's it's uh, It's really hard to, divine exactly what's coming out of it. And it's getting harder because, I mean, like everything else in China, uh, it's harder to understand exactly what's going on at the top.
0: But but it's also, you know— I mean, in some ways, it, maybe this is too simplistic, but these guys, and they tend to be all guys at the top, I mean, they're pretty, they have hard jobs, right? And so they actually do need some rest. At the same time, right, they can't just disconnect from the country for two weeks, right? And so, especially with modern technology, you know, they can do what they need to do at Beidaheo. Like, for example, around the flooding, mm-hmm. Xi Jinping didn't go sort of visit the, you know, console the victims of the floods, neither, you know, or the premier who would be more likely to go, Li Chang didn't go. But it's not like they were sitting in Beidaheo ignoring it or not paying attention, right? I'm sure that they, you know, again, like I said earlier this year, at least according to sort of Xinhua or the CCTV, you know, the Chang chaired a state council executive meeting about floods on the 8th of August. They can do these things remotely, right? I mean, they can work remotely, but also maybe lower the pace a little bit for a few days.
1: But we're yet to see a picture of Xi Jinping sitting in his swimming shorts on a wicker chair on the beach. Do you want to see that? I'm sorry.
0: I don't know. I mean, it's... <laughs>
1: But to be a bit more serious, I think that does say something about the way in which Chinese leadership has changed, you know, yeah. the messaging to the public is much more serious now. You need to respect Xi Jinping, whereas Mao was much more into his kind of I'm one of you messaging.
2: Yeah, I think so. And I, I also think that we, we talked earlier about the informal networks that could be present at Daihu. And Bill was talking about the party elders, which, you know, this year have, have um, I don't imagine they're there. I mean, there are very few left and, and they're pretty purposely excluded from most opportunities for discussion. So I think that, that Xi Jinping is not interested in having sort of an informal network of no. whispering or, or conversation. He he wants control over things. And so the more informal it is, the harder it is to control. So he's not interested in that.
0: Yeah, I, w- I would agree with that.
1: And is that why Hu Zinhua nominally banned them in the first place, because we were going into a period of China where it was more collective leadership, more formalization? Is that why that happened at that point?
0: Uh, I'm actually not sure. I, I think that that's possible. It, it's also possible it was sort of a symbol of sort of more man of the people. I don't, you know, sort of because mm-hmm. Hu Jintao was kind of more. I tried to project more of a down to earth approach, but um, at the same time, Hu Jintao of the most recent sort of general secretaries was, you know, mm-hmm. certainly perhaps the one most bothered by elder interference, specifically from his predecessor Jiang Zemin, right, who sort of never went away. And so, you know, we, again, I think even though they're supposedly, in Tao said, we don't go to Beidahe anymore. And then it caused this big sort of years of debate in the China watching community about whether or not these meetings still happen. There were still things going on at Beidahe. People still went. There were all these informal discussions and and you have lots of rumors, but I think in some accounts that have come out, um, it's pretty clear that some, at least around personnel, some decisions were pretty heavily discussed at Beidahe. This year has actually been relatively calm, but in recent years, um, and I think it's it maybe because so many more people pay attention to China, the idea that the top leadership just disappears for 14 days or 13 or 15 days just becomes a sort of a, a witch's, it's sort of the 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 accelerant for a witch's brew of rumors about like, you know, so you have people who say, well, he hasn't been on the People's Daily front page for X number of days, so therefore he's in trouble or this or that. And the challenge, of course, is no, this is what they do. Uh, it just mm-hmm. is how that system works. And so again, like if Xi Jinping hadn't appeared now, some people say, because Xi Jinping actually has not, we have not seen him. We just saw a release that said that he chaired a, a standing committee meeting. There was no video from the meeting. So some people might argue that, well, you know, maybe something's going on. It's not, he's going to ask South Africa next week. But, but my point is when it comes to trying to sort of see what's going on, it is this throwback to to this older sort of the system and its sort of its sort of historical roots. And so people, I think this year again was a little bit better, but the last couple of years, last three years around Belleha, you had these crazy rumors about stuff that was going on. I think in part because of, you know, the party congress or mm. you know, they're just they're just this year again, it was a little bit calmer, but people I think who were trying to figure out was gonna to have to understand that that there is a period 14, 15 days, where she will disappear. And that's just the way it is. Mm. If it becomes 20 days, then maybe something's going on.
1: Yeah. And, uh, you know, it reminds me of the Qingan disappearance. You know, at what point does it start becoming a real thing?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, and that one is a thing. So, yeah, I think that
2: as we're talking about Xi Jinping and, and how he's trying to navigate what's going on and he's got all these challenges trying to face and also is very clearly the most, I mean, I don't think anyone would dispute, he's the most powerful ruler in China since Mao. But the way they use Beidai He, is, I think, illustrates an important difference between the two of them. And maybe it's about Xi's vulnerability or maybe it's about just something unique, how, how times have changed. For Mao, the informality of Beidai He, I think, gave him an opportunity to advance his cult of personality. It's like because, he, because he was such a brand, because he was mm. the leadership. Um, he could manipulate people through these informal methods because actually his power was greater informally than it might be through the the formal channels. Whereas with with she, I think that he is really maybe it's because he's not as charismatic. Maybe it's because he doesn't have that sort of personal branding. Maybe it's for maybe it's because the world is just very different. And uh, Bill was mentioning earlier about the different media channels that are out there. But what she seems to want to do is he he wants to avoid informality and he wants to make everything very narrowly channeled. So for him. Even though he's a very strong central leader, Fei Dai Ho is something that doesn't appeal to his, his style, whereas I think for Mao it sort of, sort of did.
1: Yeah. Yet another reason why when we talk about a cult of personality under sea is not the same as it was under right. Mao, something that a lot of Chinese people will reflect as well. And uh, Jay, you know, maybe this is a bit flippant, but also Mao was a very strong swimmer. So maybe he wanted to show off that side of himself as well, as we know. <laughs> yeah, she
2: claims he likes to swim, but um, yeah, we haven't, we haven't seen evidence of it.
0: Well, that was, again, if I can just jump in one of those rumors, remember in 2012, before the Party Congress, where she became leader, that she disappeared for like 10, 12 days. He skipped a meeting with then U.S. Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. One of the many wonderful rumors going on, and we still have no idea what happened, was that he was attacked after swimming by one of the uh, attendants. There was people in Beijing swearing that he had been stabbed by somebody at the pool. I think it ended up being not correct. <laughs> but, I, but to your point, certainly there was the, the sense that, yes, he does like to swim.
1: <laughs> Jay and Bill, that's a great note to end on. Thank you so much both for coming on and uh, having a very summary episode of Chinese Whispers.
2: Yeah, enjoy the rest of your summer.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of Chinese Whispers. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're listening to this podcast on the Best of the Spectator channel, remember that Chinese Whispers has its own channel as well. If you just search Chinese Whispers wherever you get your podcast from, you will always get the latest episode first